0: in the united states we have about a half a million people who go bankrupt because somebody in their family got sick every year how many do you have in denmark there's this long pause and he and he says you have what and i said about half a million americans every year go bankrupt their families are totally wiped out because somebody in the family got sick how bad is it here and he said i can't imagine that you would live in a country that tolerates that this was a conservative
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I interview Tom Hartman, who returns to my show to discuss his newest book, For a longer interview with him, check out episode 428. Tom is a progressive political talk show host, entrepreneur, and author who has a multi-million person weekly audience. His latest book is about healthcare. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tom Hartman of the Hidden History Series and the Tom Hartman Show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming back to the show to talk about another book in your Hidden History series. Would you mind introducing yourself and your new book?
0: I'm Tom Hartman. The book is The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. And it's a deep dive into the state of healthcare in the United States and and I think a strong argument for single-payer healthcare.
1: Who's getting insanely rich off healthcare?
0: Oh, there's a whole bunch of folks. Probably the least deserving are the health insurance companies. For example, the, the United Healthcare had a CEO by the name of uh, Bill McGuire, William McGuire. The Wall Street Journal called him Dollar Bill McGuire. He walked away with over a billion dollars for his time at United Healthcare. He was followed by Stephen Hemsley, uh, who walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars. The compensation in this industry is mind-boggling. Most of these major insurance companies have dozens to as many as a hundred senior executives who are making over a million dollars a year each there's just mind-boggling amounts of money to be made in the health insurance industry and then in the healthcare care industry you've got you know some real buccaneers some real privateers out there um, making a profit like off hospitals for example rick scott um, was the ceo of a hospital corporation um, down out of florida that uh, he's now the senator from florida that uh, was pled guilty to the largest bank, you know, Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. They made off with over a billion dollars of our money, and ended up pleading guilty to that. Um, Scott took his money and ran, and uh, actually ran for governor, won, and then ran for the Senate. Because of this, healthcare in the United States is so much more expensive than it is in any other developed country, that it's basically a tax on on average American citizens.
1: I suppose if. A system like that delivered terrific health care across the board, we could probably tolerate it. Does it?
0: Well, no. I mean, you know, there's there's a couple of problems with our for-profit healthcare system. The first is that because it's for-profit, you've got at every level people trying to skim money off the top. That's the the obligation of a for-profit corporation or a profit-seeking person, uh, what they used to call rent-seeking behavior number one. Number two, uh, you've got people who can't afford it are pushed out and the system ends up being very, very expensive. And number three, it's filled with perverse incentives. In a country where everyone's in on the healthcare system, everyone has an incentive to make everybody healthy. I was doing my show from Denmark a, a couple of years ago and uh, Danish radio had loaned me a studio and I was interviewing a, a conservative politician. He was one of the opposition politicians. And, uh, you know, and he was, he was telling me proudly about the streets in Copenhagen that had been converted to all bicycles. And I was like, why as a conservative politician is this important to you? I mean, having bike lanes is something that's typically associated with liberals in the United States. And he was like, because it's going to reduce my taxes. And I'm like, how does it reduce your taxes that people are bicycling to work? And he said, well, what happens is when you bicycle to work, you get healthier. And if you get healthier, you use less health care. And, and our national health care bill is paid for with taxes. So the healthier Danes are, the lower my taxes are. So I'm all in favor of the bike lanes. And so there you have this virtuous cycle. On the other hand, here in the United States, you know, every time somebody ends up needing insulin because they've succumbed to our fast food mania, the insulin manufacturers make an extra buck. You know, it's, it's, we, we have entire industries whose profits depend on people getting sick economists refer to this as perverse incentive and it's a good phrase
1: it seems like there if you're in the realm of the theoretical you could get the vast majority of at least democratic politicians to say that single payer is a better system when you get into the realm of sort of practical politics and who wields influence and the difficulty of making significant change to the economy, you start to peel people off from supporting that kind of change politically. What is the road to revamping our system that globally?
0: A couple of things. Number one, there are multiple ways to do healthcare and multiple ways that it's being done all around the world. Uh, Taiwan has probably one of the purest single payer healthcare systems in the world. Switzerland, on the other hand, has no national healthcare system. But they require everyone in the country to have health insurance, and they require the health insurance companies to be not-for-profit corporations. And if your income is below a certain level, they pay your premiums, um, which is sort of a variation on Obamacare with uh, expanding Medicaid so you've got this whole spectrum and then in, and then in great britain you've got a purely socialist system or what you know uh, americans would refer to as a socialized medicine system where the uh, doctors and uh, work for the government and the hospitals are owned by the government and uh, and the government subsidizes and regulates individual physicians offices in and you know very heavily because they pay all the bills we have dimensions of all of those here in the united states with the affordable care act we've got a heavily privatized system uh, you know, private for-profit health insurance. With the Veterans Administration, you have a pure socialist system where the government owns the hospitals and employs the doctors, like the UK's National Health Service. And with Medicare and Medicaid, you have single-payer systems, very much like you know Canadian Medicare, where everybody has Medicare. Only they're only for narrow groups of people. In the case of Medicare, people over sixty-five. In the case of Medicaid, people who are Uh, below a certain income threshold or who are severely disabled Uh, actually disabled people are covered by medicare so uh the elderly are covered by medicaid long-term nursing it's not like we don't have things we can choose from (laughs) if we wanted to pick one and say let's try doing this and this is something that uh that bernie sanders got me thinking about years ago when he was on my program when he used to come on every friday Uh, uh you know we were talking about uh extending Medicare to everybody in the United States. And he was like, I'm not sure that's the right way to do this. He he says, at the federal level, he said, I think it should be administered by the states. And it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, you know, his point was that if the individual state governments are closer to the people and they're more responsive to the people typically than the federal government. And this way, you can also have the individual state governments tweaking and experimenting with what works. And you'll have essentially a competition to produce the most um, vital and uh, efficient and effective healthcare system. And, and he pointed out to me that that's what happened in Canada. Tommy Douglas was the premier of Saskatchewan, and he uh, pushed through a, a single-payer healthcare system in Saskatchewan, and it dropped costs so much, and people loved it so much. I mean, he's still re- revered every year, you know, and the, uh, the number one Canadian, he's sort of like the George Washington of Canada, <laughs> you know, everybody loves it. He's not even with us anymore. Um, And so, anyhow, he he passed that in Saskatchewan. And then, you know, uh, Ottawa said, well, I'd like that in British Columbia. Well, hey, we want something like that in Ontario. And and pretty soon, you know, it was spreading across the country and the federal government jumped into the act and said, we'll backstop you guys and we'll provide some uniformity and make sure that when somebody moves from one province to another, there's some continuity. Um, But they have a fairly decentralized system. And uh, when I lived in Germany, it's, it's somewhat the same. It, it, they have a, a relatively decentralized system in that the individual states administer the systems locally. I'm not sure how that works in, in all the other you know, countries around the world. I haven't done an individual survey, but um, I think there's a lot to be said for that.
1: Well, it doesn't feel politically like we're close to that kind of change?
0: Well, there's, there's two problems. One is that single-payer systems tend to put health insurance companies out of business, and they don't like that, and they own politicians. <laughs> the Vermont legislature passed a single-payer law, and it was signed by the governor. And uh, they then set out to put it into place, and what they discovered when they set out to put it into place was that all the people on Medicaid in the state, and there are a lot, Vermont's very rural and and frankly, a very poor state. I lived there for 10 years. Large chunks of it are very poor. And all the people on Medicare, all the retired people, there is a federal law that prevents that money from passing through into any kind of state system that's not just Medicaid and Medicare. And so, I mean, states can rebrand it, Um, They call it Texas care or something, but it's still just Medicaid or Medicare, you know, or Medicaid actually would be the case. And because of that federal law, it's damn near impossible for an individual state. They would have to literally give up their Medicaid money and and probably their Medicare money in order to have a single payer system, which would bankrupt the state. So you've got two states, Vermont and, and California, that have passed legislation to do this. Neither of them have been able to do it because the federal government has not changed, has not tweaked that provision of federal law. And that's the the, the battleground right now where uh, an awful lot of fighting is going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, the corporations, the big insurance companies very much want to keep that law in place because it's the one, it's the one barrier that prevents individual states from going single-payer. And then, of course, you've got progressive state governments anyway that want to see it taken down.
1: I imagine that... Your audience for this book, many of them, most of them are persuaded already that single payer is a better system than the one we have. What's in the book for them?
0: All the statistics you ever need to make your argument. <laughs> you know, I, I did a real deep dive when I wrote this book, and and you know uh, how much it costs us, how much you know how it compares to other countries, what it would cost to actually put into place a single payer healthcare system or a Medicare for all system. What are the various ways that we could get there? It's in many ways kind of a toolkit for Medicare for all activists, because the conclusion of the book is that Medicare for all is the, really the way we should go in this country.
1: How did you go about putting the book together? Who did you talk to? What did you read? What was your process?
0: Well, with with all of these books in this series, um, what I do is I spend the first couple of months just uh, doing a deep dive into the topic, you know, as much as I can, spending a lot of time online. I probably bought 20 or 30 books for research on this and, and you know, read many of them and pieces of others. And then, you know, I, uh, I put together an outline and then, you know, you write the book. One of the things that I found that was most amazing in the research that I was doing for this book was the reason why we uh, don't have a national health care system in the United States. And for that matter, the reason why Medicare has a 20% hole in it or a gap in it. And that goes back to the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. In the 1880s, 1890s, uh, medicine was becoming a, a thing, you know, it was becoming a real, uh, profession, Lister and surgeons started wearing masks and there were huge advances in surgery and the germ theory was widely accepted and some uh, early antibiotics were being developed and used. And and, um, around that time, we had insurance companies. In fact, uh, one of the first mutual insurance companies was created by Ben Franklin in Philadelphia. And the insurance companies were big on life insurance and casualty insurance, and fire insurance and things like that. And they were just starting to think about health insurance and as the insurance industry was kind of gelling and solidified this was the 1880s 1890s early 1900s and around that time this fellow from germany frederick ludwig hoffman emigrated from germany to the united states and married a a, a southern belle, a, a, a young woman from georgia and lived down in georgia for a while and while he was in georgia He was a statistician by the way he was an absolute genius with numbers um and uh, he made his way as a statistician in the united states he was the guy who actually discovered the association between tobacco use and lung cancer he was the guy who discovered the association between asbestos and mesothelioma and got you know became very famous for this He also discovered the connection between cancer and a diet high in processed foods or low in fresh fruits and vegetables. And he wrote a book about that that's still in print. So, you know, Frederick Hoffman was like really into figuring things out and understanding things. And he got exposed to this theory when he was living in southern United States that African Americans were genetically inferior to, to white people, that white people were the pinnacle of evolution, that humans moved out of Africa and went up to North America and in the process continued evolving, not just losing our skin pigment, but also, you know, improving in every other way imaginable. And so he came up with this hypothesis, which was not unique to him. He was really echoing one that was very, very widespread at the time, uh, that is referred to as scientific racism which was the theory that uh, because African Americans were genetically inferior to white people, if we simply prevented them from having access to health care systematically, that the entire race would die out in a couple of generations, and that would solve the race problem in America. And he put this forward as a solution. He wrote a book about it called Race Tendencies of the American Negro, and uh, he became the vice president as he was doing his statistics, his statistical analysis, he was hired by the Prudential Company, which was the nation's largest insurance company at the time, and started out you know, with uh, casualty and life insurance and, and, and was moving toward health insurance in the uh, 1920s. And uh, he took this theory from his Race Tendencies book and took it on the road, traveled all over America, giving hundreds of speeches, testified before Congress, testified before state legislatures, and everywhere he went, his sales pitch was the government should do everything it can to avoid allowing black people to have access to health care, continue inter- segregating the, the h- hospitals, doctor's offices, um, you know, don't have government fund any kind of national healthcare care system. He was from Germany. Germany got a single payer health care system in 1884 with, with Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck. Um, and he was like, don't do that. You know, that's a terrible system because then everybody in the country gets it. And you don't want that. And that ideology, that that belief, right up until the 1960s, was being cited and quoted by Southern Democratic lawmakers. The, the Democrats at that time in, this, in, this, in the 60s were the party of racism in the United States, Were being cited by Southern Democratic lawmakers as reasons to make sure that anybody who got Medicare had skin in the game. In other words, Medicare only covers eighty percent of expenses because they knew that poor blacks would not be able to pay that twenty percent, and therefore they couldn't get any of the health care. And again, it was an attempt to to not just kill them off, but let them die essentially. And uh, it's still it's still very much part of the American uh, ideology, sadly.
1: That is just awfully nasty to hear.
0: Yeah, it's, and it's true. It's, it's like, you know, the American Medical Association was all white in 1965. There was a separate medical association for black doctors. They fought integration of hospitals. Medicare, when Lyndon Johnson put it into place, was the first nationwide government system that required, in order for a hospital to, to qualify for Medicare, to stop being segregated, to integrate their hospital. And uh, Martin Luther King helped organize inspectors in the 60s who traveled around to hospitals, ratting out those hospitals that were denying care to black people and reporting it back to LBJ or to Joe Califano, who was running HUD at the time, and, uh, or HEW or whatever the agency was called at the time. And uh, it was the, the most successful racial integration program in American history because it was coming right into direct collision with this uh, you know, a Hoffman uh, theory that, you know, I think is still animating a lot of uh, the the reason why, for example, you know, why did Rick Scott fight so hard when he was governor of Florida to prevent Florida from expanding Medicaid to poor people? Well, you know, a large chunk of the poor people in the state of Florida are black. Um, that That ideology still lives.
1: What else did you uncover that you think is really important to the Sort of ideological debate and practical debate about whether or not we could move to single payer healthcare.
0: I think another really important point and I open the book with it actually is um, how public health, the, the health of the society, the health of the country, how public health and individual health are really uh, two sides of the same coin. I tell the story in the book about the country that had the most effective response against COVID in the first year of the pandemic was Taiwan. And uh, they had literally the world's most effective uh, testing and contact tracing program, bar none. And the reason why was because they have arguably the most comprehensive, thorough, deep-seated, deep-dive, long-established single-payer healthcare systems in the world. And uh, everybody in Taiwan has a, has a, a card, sort of like a driver's license, you know with a photo and, and and biometric information that you can plug into any computer anywhere and get your own medical data. Uh, or you can go to your doctor's office and use it for payment, and, and it's also your records, all your medical records. So any any doctor you see they have access to your medical records, there are good privacy controls. And but as a result of the system, because everybody in Taiwan is in the system, whether it's a newborn or whether it's somebody ninety years old, um, they were able to do contact tracing really, really rapidly and efficiently, and therefore they were able to put COVID in a bottle. You know, they were able to just block it off early on, and they ended up with one of the lowest death rates in the world as a result of that. Individual health and public health are the same thing. The other big thing that I thought was, um, you know, it was something I already knew, but I didn't realize how bad the situation was. Was medical debt in the United States? when I was in Denmark and when I was interviewing uh, mostly conservative politicians, which is my favorite thing to do, find conservatives to debate anywhere in the world. And I had this guy on who was a member of parliament and uh, he was ranting and raving about immigrants, which apparently is the main issue for conservatives in Denmark, uh, brown people coming into their country. And I said, well, let's talk about healthcare. You know, you've got a single payer healthcare system here in Denmark, Um, you know, if you're conservative, you must hate that, right? And he was like, what, are you crazy? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's, you've know, you got to have some kind of a problem. I mean, in the United States, we have about a half a million people who go bankrupt because somebody in their family got sick every year. How many do you have in Denmark? And there was this long pause. I mean, he was sitting in the studio with me. There was this long pause. And he, and he says, you have what? And I said, about half a million Americans every year go bankrupt. Their families are totally wiped out because somebody in the family got sick. How bad is it here? And he said, I can't imagine that you would live in a country that tolerates that. This was a conservative, right? And and well,
1: conservative there is different than a conservative here. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely. really have an anomalous country. We do, right? We on, do. I mean, on, a, on many fronts.
0: Yeah, the, the total number, you know, and it was a half a million at that time. That was about a decade ago. It was seven hundred thousand last year in the United States. It's probably going to be a million this year. Last year and this year being particularly bad because of COVID, because so many uninsured people are are just poorly insured. I mean, health insurance just sucks in general in the United States. And people are getting whacked with co-pays and and no pays and everything else. It's gotten really, really bad. And this is a drag on our entire economy. This isn't just a healthcare issue. There there are people who are not starting families, who are not starting businesses. There are entrepreneurial opportunities that they're passing on because they need to keep their job because of the health insurance or because they're afraid of of, going out on their own like this because they won't have access to inexpensive health insurance. To some extent, Obamacare helped that situation, uh, but you know nowhere near as much as we need. So this is a a kind of a whole of society impact. People tend to think of healthcare in a in a box, you know, as as this little separate, unique uh, issue or separate, unique area of expertise or debate or whatever. But really, it impacts everything, absolutely everything in our society.
1: You have a widely listened to progressive radio show what are people talking about these days on it what are the main topics of concern how are progressives feeling right now
0: well you know our, our show is largely driven every day by the news cycle so right now it's you know trump betrayed america when he ordered pakistan to release the head of the taliban and then cut a cut a secret deal with him and uh you know told him that we were well ultimately it wasn't secret but um, and tried to invite him to Camp David, and uh, you know he sold out. He sold us out. Trump did, and he closed ten air force bases in, in Afghanistan, which is why we can't get our people out right now. When he told the Taliban that we were we were going to pull out on May first, at that point, the Taliban started going back to uh, all of their local leaders or their their you know regional leaders all over Afghanistan and telling people. Um, who were in the afghan army who were just trying to make a living you know i mean it was a good paycheck right uh, they were going to these people in the afghan army saying you know we're going to come and we're going to take over because you know we have this signed agreement with the president of the united states that says america leaves on may 1st of, t- of 2021 and and so uh you continue taking your paycheck from the government but when we show up uh, just set down your weapons and we won't kill you everything will be good and that's why the You know, when when finally, you know, uh, Joe Biden pulled the trigger, uh, terrible metaphor, but you you know what I mean? Said, okay, it's we're getting out. That's why the whole government just instantly collapsed. And the army basically just melted away and fled was because this deal had been worked out between Donald Trump and the Taliban and the people in the Afghan army back last year. They were all waiting for this moment. And so, you know, we got stabbed in the back and so did Afghanistan by Donald Trump and his people. That's, that's a, one of the major topics of conversation right now.
1: What do you think is coming for the next, the midterm election?
0: I don't know. There are so many dynamics at play. Uh, Biden is taking a huge political hit from, you know, Trump's sabotage. Trump set this up, you know, a really slick job, Donald, you know, he, he really handed uh, Biden a, a disaster. Um, and then on top of that, of course, you've got all these people running around saying no masks in our schools and critical race theory in our schools and, you know, just stirring up people and making general hysteria. And then on top of that, you've got individual Republican controlled states changing their election laws so that they can, you know, uh, throw people off the voting rolls without, you know, without any kind of consideration and they can even ignore votes or change votes and uh, or change the outcome of elections at the same time you've got joe biden doing a pretty good job with the pandemic and uh, getting us out of afghanistan even though it seems to have its problems it's really hard to say uh it's i think a lot is going to depend on the base of both parties Uh, the republican base is fairly cranked up right now Uh, the democratic base If uh, Biden can pass these large infrastructure bills, if he can get these things through, if he can get the For the People Act passed so that they can stop the voter suppression laws and we can change the election laws that Republicans are passing, then I think Democrats have a chance of uh, taking back the Senate and holding the House. If they don't, then I suspect that the Republicans will take control of the country. And and, uh, if so, I think that we would be facing a really severe economic disaster, not to mention a political one.
1: And not to mention a possible comeback for the previous president. You betcha. Yeah, which is just highly scary. Is there a question I failed to ask that I should have about your book?
0: Oh, um, uh, Medicare is uh, another fascinating issue here. Uh, You know, what's going on with Medicare? How in uh, 2005, George W. Bush or maybe it was 2003 i'd have to go back and look at the book one or the other uh george w bush wanted to start taking apart social security and medicare he had ran for congress back in 1978 from texas he lost but he had run on the platform of ending uh medicare and, and privatizing social security and uh so his plan to take a bite out of medicare was to privatize it basically and to allow the health insurance companies to compete head-to-head with regular Medicare, but giving them massive subsidies. So uh, what they did was they created this program, and they called it Medicare Part C. What it is is that private health insurance companies can offer their own private policies with many of the gotchas that private policies have, like you've got to check with them before you get a procedure, and sometimes they refuse to pay for things, et cetera, et cetera. But they could call it Medicare. They could put the, the, all they had to do is add the word advantage to it, Medicare Advantage. And it's not Medicare. And people, as they get older and get more expensive, these private companies do everything they can to, to make life hell for them. So they will dump their Medicare Advantage and go on regular Medicare as they become very expensive. So our government picks up even more of the bill and the private health insurance companies can then, you know, just make a profit off people between the time that they're say 65 and 70 or 75, when they're still relatively healthy. But once they start getting sicker and more expensive, then, you know, boom, Medicare Advantage just sticks it to you. And it's such a scam. And, And it is draining the coffers of Medicare itself because these companies are not just passing through the costs, but they're also taking huge profits on Medicare Advantage, which is why you see them advertising on TV all the time. So, uh, you know, this, this is another kind of alarm bell that I wanted to ring for people. But this, is, this was a naked attempt to damage and destroy Medicare, and it's working. And you've got about a quarter and a third of all Americans over 65 are now in Medicare Advantage, and it is rapidly draining the Medicare trust.
1: That's distressing to hear. It's always good to talk to you. I don't want to take too much of your time. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, I, that's, that's good, Nathaniel. Thank
1: you for having me on the program. That was Tom Hartman of The Tom Hartman Show. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.